started here because we have a lot to cover, and if you're familiar with coming to my classes, you know that I work through things kind of slowly, so this is going to be a real challenge. I'm supposed to go through the entire book of Acts this morning. You know, normally, I'd be like the first verse today, so... <laughs> So this is going to be this is going to be difficult for me, um, and I'm also not a note provider. So I hope this works. Um, anyway, I provided some some notes for you. There's some blanks there, and as I go along, I'll let you know what the what it, the answer to those blanks are, so you can fill them in. I know some people like that, some people don't. So don't feel like you have to do it if you don't want to, um, but it's there for you. And I know it looks like a lot, but Trust me, I cut this way down from what I was going to give you. So, uh, <laughs> Anyway, it's, it's hard for me to um, skip over things, uh, so, but we don't, we don't have time to do everything, and I'm sure Larry and Bubba feel the same way. You, you, know, you only got a certain amount of time. So what we'll try to do is hit on some of the key, the key points here and uh, do the best we can with our church history study. So, um, we have, oops, I pulled up the wrong thing here. Let me switch over. There we go. So, a couple of weeks ago, we started up again in our church history study that we had started almost a year ago, and um, with Bubba doing a sort of an introduction, and in, in particular dealing with um, why church history? Why is that something we should pay attention to? And dealing with the, uh, the, the Bible, the canon of Scripture. And, and so a couple weeks ago, we started that again. Bubba took us through a recap of the introduction he did a year ago. I'm sure that was hard for him to have to even cut that down. Um, and so, but to talk about, again about why is church history important to us? Why should it be important to us? Um, how we got the Bible? And then Larry, last week, um, um, brought up the fact that the church is often pictured as a building in the scriptures, and of course that Jesus is the cornerstone, right? the one by whom everything, including the foundation, is started and kept straight. Um, and last week, he, he followed that picture of the church as a building and went over uh, three essential pillars of truth that the church is um, characterized by. And in talking about the inerrancy and authority of the Word of God and the importance of the work of God on behalf of sinners and the, the proper biblical worship of God um, in spirit and in truth. And these are what the church cannot deviate from. And as we will see through this study, there are times when the church does so. I'm not talking about just this study today, but this study as a whole, we'll see there are times when the church does deviate from the truth. Um, but by God's grace, there are times when the church recovers the truth, and, and that is extremely important. The truth is everything, and the only truth that we have as Christians is the truth of the Word of God. Uh, Jesus asked the Father to sanctify His people in the truth, and then He identified that truth as the Word of God. He was very clear about that. And throughout world history and in our time um, now, the church is where truth is found. This is where truth is found because the church possesses and teaches the Word of God. Um, when Paul gave Pastor Timothy instructions 
regarding the church, he said, uh, he gave him the instructions so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. That's 1 Timothy 3.15. So we must keep the truth. We must live by the truth, defend the truth, and always come back to the truth. We must be devoted to the truth and guard the truth in the church and in our hearts. And today we're going to look at the beginning of the church and, and how the first group of Christians did just that, lived by the truth, and, and what happened at the start of the church, and, and who were some of the first giants of the Christian faith that came before us. And Bubba talked about those giants that came before us on whose shoulders we stand. And, but before we can get to those, uh, to the ones that were less likely that we're less familiar with, you know, as church history progresses um, through the centuries, we're going to look at the ones that we are pretty familiar with because they're in the Scriptures, the ones who walked with Jesus, right? the first ones to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, transformed from lost and confused to anchored and unswervingly focused, from unreliable and, and cowardly even to bold martyrs. And from murdering Christians to dying as a Christian. Okay, we'll, we'll look at these Christians who Christ used to begin building the church. Men like Stephen and Peter and Paul and John. Ordinary men who Christ transformed and sent out. Men who we can sometimes view as, if we're not careful, as fictional characters. Right? We can kind of think of them that way. Uh, people in a story instead of actual historical people, our brothers and sisters in Christ who came before us. These are real people. And we'll be, we'll be camping out today in the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles, you can just open up to the book of Acts. Um, and we'll look at some of these familiar people. Um, hopefully, we'll look at them today through the lens of church history, because that is what Acts is. It's the first book of church history. Uh, in the New Testament, a, a history that is still being written through the lives of the redeemed and faithful. Now, I don't mean to say that the Bible is still being written. That's not what I'm saying. But church history, God's people that are still living and he's still using and he's still using to call more people to himself, that is all still happening. Um, but first, I want to open with a word of prayer and then we'll get started. Father in heaven, thank you for this day. We thank you uh, for the, the time to gather here today and, and talk about your church and what you have done with your church and how it began. Um, Lord, we pray that you would give us knowledge and understanding, and Lord, that we would be inspired by, by those who came before us. Um, Lord, how they, filled with the Holy Spirit, did what you wanted them to do, and they, they lived their lives. They sometimes died for you. Lord, I pray that we would be faithful servants of yours as well in our time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Does anybody need some notes that didn't get them? I have two more here if, if anybody needs them. No? Okay. All right, well, if you change your mind, they're right up here. Um, all right, so like I said, we have a lot to go through. Um, now, in your note sheets, I'll, I'll try my best to remember to tell you about the little blanks there. Um, so the book of Acts was written by, and that gets to your first blank there, Luke. Okay, the book of Acts is written by Luke. Uh, and 
um, it's addressed to the same person that he addressed his gospel to, this man named Theophilus. And he's probably a very important man in society that Luke knew. The book of Acts is uh, the account of events occurring from about 30 to 62 AD. It's about a 30-year period in time uh, in the history of the beginning of the church. Um, It is a book that overwhelmingly chronicles the work of the apostles. Okay, not, not that other people and their contributions are not mentioned, but the work of God through the apostles is front and center throughout the book of Acts. Um, and hence the name that's given to the book, Acts. Speaking of the acts of the apostles in spreading the gospel um, as they were empowered by the Holy Spirit to do so. And this period... Um, time period here is often referred to as the apostolic age, and that word apostle means sent ones. That's one of your blanks there. Sent ones or ambassadors. And when we think about Jesus' disciples before his death, we think of them like, like I mentioned a bit ago, sometimes um, as fictional characters. So we, we think of them even from reading the scriptures as people who are confused and Lost and fearful and, and, like I said, even cowardly. And Jesus predicted his betrayal. He predicted Peter's denial of him and the fact that they would all leave him because they would fear his fate. Matthew 26, 31, uh, then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So we think about these people, these historical biblical figures, and they weren't the best role models. They, they were very fearful. Right? They, they weren't the ones you would think would be serving God in the ways we see later on in, in the book of Acts. Um, and they did betray him. They, they did leave him alone, just as he said they would. But that's not the end of the story. As, as Luke documents in the book of Acts, there really was a, a definite and visible transformation in each one of the apostles and the other disciples of Jesus Christ. And this is most definitely due to two foundational and critical moments in time. Right? And these would be, um, there's your blanks there, these would be the resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And we'll look at some of those examples later in this lesson. But, but those are key events, right? The resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit. That, those, that changed everything. If you read through the book of Acts with this transformation in mind, you can see it happen as you remember these men before the resurrection. You remember as they followed Jesus uh, and, and how they're this kind of up and down, back and forth, fearful, not fearful, seemingly bold, uh, you know, willing to die for him, but then they leave him alone, right? But we can see it as we go through um, the book. We can see this happening sort of in real time. It, it's a... It's really an instant change when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. It's almost like they were, I don't know, what could we call it? Born again? A new creation? You see this total transformation in these people. The apostles themselves were a unique group of men in church history. And Christ sent them out with the authority not only to teach and write and spread the gospel message, but God gave them supernatural power as well. So what, 
question here, what did God give the apostles power to do to authenticate the gospel message? What did he give them the power to do? Miracles, right? To perform miracles. Okay, he, he also revealed divine truth to them through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And that divine truth is written for us in the New Testament scriptures. All the New Testament was written either directly by an apostle or someone directly under their authority. Uh, sometimes a scribe would write for them. Uh, the, the apostolic period ended with the death of the last of the apostles, which was the apostle John. And you have a blank there for that. That's in about 100 AD um, when John died. The end of the apostolic age was the end of the apostolic age. It's not repeated. Okay? The Scripture describes the apostles as foundational. Ephesians 2.20 says that the household of God, or the church, was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Right? You don't build a foundation and then build the structure up on it and then build another foundation. And anyway, who's building the church? Jesus. Jesus is building the church. It's his church. Right? Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And it's important to note that, that leaders in the church uh, in the following centuries didn't claim to be apostles or consider themselves to be apostles. It was understood that these men were unique instruments used by God as the foundation of the church. Um, and a large false and worldwide movement today is founded on the belief that apostles have been reinstated. Okay? We should run from anyone claiming to be an apostle. They're, they're deceivers. And one of the epicenters of this false movement is very close to us in Redding, California, and it's at Bethel. They've strayed from the truth, and we talk about truth and the Word of God. They've abandoned the Word of God for the Word of their so-called apostles. You can see the danger in that, right? Set the Word of God aside. What does the apostle say? Well, he's making it up, whatever it is. So the second thing I want to talk about here is, is the birth of the church. Um, we read a minute ago about Jesus building his church. In the book of Acts, we see the beginning of that. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would come. He, he promised that in John 14. He, he talked about that in John 16. Um, and now at the beginning of Luke's writing in the book of Acts, in chapter 1, he says, Jesus is talking to his apostles. He says, it's coming in a matter of days. He's telling them to wait. It's coming soon. Let's look, look real quick, if we could, at Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Acts 1, 1 through 5. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to, those, to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. Okay, it's coming soon. Um, then, of course, 
Luke writes about the ascension of Christ into heaven. Um, the apostles chose Matthias as an apostle to replace Judas, uh, who was the betrayer. And then we get to chapter 2. And the setting here in chapter 2 of Acts, if you want to turn there, is on a particular day. It's a, a festival that the Jews have celebrated since the time of Moses, right? Called the Feast of Weeks. Um, back in, in Deuteronomy, we can see that there. God instructed the people um, to count out 50 days to the day, or roughly seven weeks from the, the uh, Passover celebration. Okay, and the, the Old Testament calls this the Feast of Weeks, but the New Testament uses the Greek word, uh, which is Pentecost, and you have a blank for that there, meaning 50, right, according to the number of days since the Passover. This Pentecost, however, would be different than any other. Including the apostles, there were 120 or so disciples of Christ in an upper room in Jerusalem when the promised Holy Spirit came upon them to indwell them and empower them. That's one of your blanks there, is 120. And Luke writes that this group of people and this event, this time at Pentecost, was accompanied by the sound of a mighty rushing wind and fire that came and rested on them. And these elements are seen in, in the Old Testament and New Testament when God is making his presence known to his people. There, there are common signs of his presence, his holiness, his judgment, his refining. Um, these, are, these are common elements that we see in Scripture associated with God. Another sign that the apostles were given to authenticate the message of the gospel was the ability to speak languages they had never been able to speak before. And this is known as the gift of tongues. In your blank there, you can put tongues. Now, there were a large number of Jews in Jerusalem that had traveled there for the festival. Um, lots of extra people around that are there from all over the Roman Empire. And these Jews spoke many different languages based on where they were from. Languages other than Aramaic and Greek, which were spoken in Jerusalem. And we even have Luke's account of the different language groups that were there. In chapter 2, verses 9 and 11, we can see that. He says they were Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our tongues the mighty works of God. Now these supernatural events had the effect of drawing a crowd. Okay, people started to come. People wanted to know what is going on here. Um, the apostles and others went out from the upper room. They began to speak to the people um, in languages they had never spoken before. And we see here in this scene God using all of this to do exactly what we looked at earlier regarding Jesus' promise to build his church. That's what God is doing here in church history. Now, these they're not babbling nonsense okay, and drawing attention to themselves. They're speaking actual languages. Okay? Chapter 2, verse 11, the people said, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Not only are these actual languages, but they are saying something. They are 
telling the mighty works of God. That's what the people are hearing. It's not just small talk. Okay? In their own languages, they're hearing these people speak. Supernaturally, God, they had never been able to speak these languages before. God gave them this gift at this time to authenticate the message of the gospel. This message is, is coming now. It's going forth into the world. And God does this in power through his people. Um, on that day, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, preached a sermon in verses 14 through 36 in chapter 2 that God used to convict uh, many people of their sin. Remember, there's a lot of people here at this time because of the, the festival. So he stands and he explains to everyone what they're seeing and what they're hearing and what's going on. And, and he explains to them this is a, a fulfillment of prophecy. And then we really see the, the floodgates of evangelism open through Peter's words. Let's look at verses 22 through 24 in chapter 2. And this is what Peter does. Remember who Peter is, right? We talked about the, the weakness of these men before. Verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. These are strong words from Peter. These, these are hard words for people to hear. But Peter's words are used by God here to convict these people. We see in their response the effective power uh, and sufficiency of the Word of God. And we, we see the saving work of God through the Holy Spirit. And we see the proper worship, worshipful response in spirit and truth. These things that Larry went over last week. So let's look at their response in verses 37 through 39, chapter 2. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is their, their response. Oh, I, I missed a verse there, 39. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Okay, so you have this bold preaching from Peter to a large crowd of people that have gathered because God has brought them there by his, his uh, supernatural um, gifts that he's giving them. And now we see the response to this bold preaching uh, to this, what is really the effective call of God through the gospel. And their response is in repentance and faith. They, they were baptized as a symbol of their profession of faith in Christ. And there were that day 3,000 people saved by this sermon from a faithful servant of God that we know as Peter. That's one of your blanks there, 3,000 people. A man who only a few weeks earlier had denied Jesus three times. That is transformation, true transformation. In these events here, the church is born. And we see the work of God in, in doing exactly what he said, in building his church. 
And from this moment, the church continues to grow. Just a few verses later, Luke describes how the people of the church devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. It's one of your blanks there. In other words, they were devoted to the authoritative teaching and preaching of the Word of God. Devoted to it. They were also devoted to fellowship and to the breaking of bread together and to prayer. We see that in Acts 2.42. This is what the early church was marked by. And church history has shown this, this is the ongoing pattern of the true church. And we don't have time to go over all the events of the early church through Peter's ministry But he and others go on to continue to boldly preach the gospel and stand for the truth of God in the face of great danger and hardship. This was not easy. It's not like we have, you know, you can share the gospel with somebody here in Mount Shasta. They can come to faith in Christ, come to church here, and no one's going to beat them up. You know, no one's going to threaten them. Uh, It's different back then. It was very different. And even today, all across the world, People coming to faith in Christ in countries and places where it could be a death sentence for them to profess faith in Christ. Peter's known for telling the religious leaders in chapter 5, we must obey God rather than man. Right? This person who weeks earlier had denied Jesus three times. Even though he had told Jesus, I would go to death, go with you to death. Well, that wasn't true. But that has changed Right? We see a complete transformation, and not just a Peter. And in chapter 6, we have the account of the choosing of seven men within the church to help with some of the needs within the church. There was some, some division going on. There were some problems that needed to be taken care of, and the apostles um, didn't have the time to do all of that. They, they needed to be devoted to other things. And we see that these men were chosen, and in some ways, these are the first deacons of the church, this, and this is done to free up the apostles uh, to be able to focus on the Word of God and prayer. Two of your blanks there. You can find that in chapter 6, verse 4. And one of these men is named Stephen, which brings us to another significant point in church history, uh, and it's found in, in chapter 7. This, this event is centered around another powerful sermon. This time given by Stephen, but with a much different outcome than than Peter's Pentecost sermon. So our third point here is is around Stephen's martyrdom, the martyrdom of, of Stephen. Stephen's preaching led to his arrest in chapter 6 after evil men made false allegations against him of blasphemy. Uh, They brought false charges against him. Uh, They were angry with him. They disputed with him. And the Bible says they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with uh, which he was speaking in chapter 6, verse 10. They brought all their arguments, but Stephen was speaking the word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit, and they couldn't withstand it. They, They were angered by this. They continued making all kinds of false accusations against him and Chapter 7 begins with the high priest asking Stephen if these charges are true, right? They've taken him, taken him before the high priest, and he's saying, are these things true, which is the launching point for Stephen's powerful sermon against the sins of these people. 
He eventually calls them stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears and always resisting the Holy Spirit and betraying and murdering the Messiah. Right? And they became enraged at this. They, they, scripture says they ground their teeth at him. They, ultimately, they plugged their ears so they didn't have to hear what Stephen was saying. And they responded by dragging him out of the city and stoning him to death making Stephen the first martyr of the Christian church. And that's one of your blanks there, that word martyr is there. And this, again, like I said, is a very different outcome than the sermon that Peter preached at Pentecost. But no less the will of God for the building up of his church. This began a period of great persecution in the church. And the word martyr comes from a Greek word meaning witness. And martyrs are... are Witnesses of Jesus Christ, even all the way to the point of death. It's this event in church history that causes Christians to begin to scatter right, throughout the region. And when they go out throughout the region, what are they doing? They're taking the gospel with them. The gospel is going out, is being spread. And they're beginning to fulfill the Great Commission, the, the call of Jesus to his people to take the word to the ends of the, end of the, ends of the earth. Again, how do we explain these people going from timid and fearful to bold and trusting God? How do we explain that? The Spirit of God, right? The power of the indwelling Spirit of God. As you probably know, while Stephen was being stoned, there was a young man there, a Pharisee, who watched over the coats of the people as they stoned Stephen to death, as they murdered him. And this young man approved of this act. The people laid their coats at his feet. Acts 7, 58 says, then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Of course, this man would later be known by a different name than Saul. He would, he would become known as Paul. That's one of your blanks there. Okay, and, and he, Paul, we know he would write most of the New Testament. Um, but for now, Saul, he is a vicious persecutor of the church, going house to house, the Scripture says. He's ravaging the church. He's dragging men and women off to prison. Um, they, are, they are being killed for their faith in Christ. Paul approves, or Saul approves of this. And that brings us to our next section here, the conversion of Saul and also of Cornelius. And these, these take place in Acts 9 and 10. Moving into chapter 9 in the book of Acts, um, we have probably one of the most significant events in the early church, that is the, the conversion of Saul. Saul, who is a man breathing out murderous threats against the Christians, imprisoning Christians, and this conversion takes him from that, from being an absolute enemy of God, to becoming a Christian himself, to becoming a child of God, to becoming a tool of God, to be used in the building up of his church in church history. Now, Saul didn't go to a revival meeting. He didn't walk down an aisle. He didn't pray a prayer, but he was absolutely converted one day while he was traveling to Damascus with letters to go and imprison more Christians. And that account can be found in Acts 9, Acts 9, verses 1 through 19. 
Um, we don't have time to go through all of it. Um, and also there's two other places that Luke writes about in Acts where we have Saul's version or Paul's version of what took place on that day. Um, and I think I left those scriptures in your notes. Um, chapter 22, verses 3 through 18, and 26, verses 9 through 18. So Saul has this dramatic conversion, right? Jesus appears, blinds him with his bright light. He's, he sends him into the city. Um, Jesus gives a vision to, to Ananias. Ananias goes and unblinds Saul. And remember, one of the things that Ananias questioned God, are you sure, really, this guy, Saul? We know who this guy is. And he said, go, go. He said, he is a, a tool of his to be used, and he's going to show him how much he must suffer for his name's sake. And so God is going to use Saul mightily in church history. And we, we have this, the record of this in, in the Scriptures. Um, so he has this dramatic conversion and is used by God in spreading the gospel to the Gentiles. And the church not only grows through the ministry of Saul, um, later Paul, but expands to include the Gentile world. And ironically, later, uh, Paul would pastor a church in Antioch in Syria, partially made up of people who were there at the stoning of Stephen, people who fled, who were scattered, and he ends up being one of the pastors there, um, teaching these people. It wasn't easy for the Jews who had come to faith in Christ. It's not easy for them when the time came for Gentiles to be added in. Um, it wasn't easy for them to believe even that Saul, this man, could now be one of them. That was a, a hurdle that had to be overcome. Um, and you have men like Barnabas who, who vouched for, for Paul and helped the church to come to be able to trust him. And it's interesting to note, uh, it was at that church in Antioch that we're talking about where uh, the followers of Christ were first called Christians. That's one of your blanks there. And that's in Acts eleven twenty six. 26. In that church is where they were first called Christians. And Paul would, he would become the, the last of the apostles of Jesus Christ. Not the last one to live, but the last one, the last one to be made an apostle. Of Christ. He was not one of the twelve. He would describe himself um, as an apostle. Uh, in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 8 through 10a, it says, Last of all, this is Paul writing, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. We see Again, he, his acknowledgement here that it's by the grace of God he has been transformed. It's by the grace of God that he is being used by God in any fashion to spread the gospel, to be a part of the growth of the church um, as God sees fit. And of course, Paul identified himself as an apostle in, in much of his writing, in the greetings of his letters. You, you can see that. He refers to himself as an apostle. Um. And though Paul is known as the, he is known as the apostle to the Gentiles, but even so, it's, it's through Peter that God brings about the first Gentile conversion, really. And this, that conversion is of a man named Cornelius, and that's one of your blanks there as well. This man named Cornelius and his, and his family. Um, 
And we have to understand how significant it is that Gentiles would be included in, uh, in God's kingdom. The Jews did not like the Gentiles. The Gentiles were unclean. The Jews wouldn't even enter their houses uh, because that would make them ceremonially unclean. Ceremonially unclean. A Gentile is basically anyone who's not a Jew. Okay, in other words, to the Jews, there were two kinds of people right, in the world. The Jews, God's people, uh, and everyone else, the Gentiles, those who didn't worship Yahweh. They would refer to Gentiles as dogs. That's how they felt about them. You can imagine how ingrained this was when you, you have something like 1,500 years where God is working uh, with the Jewish nation as his people. And now, in the church age, the gospel is going out to all nations and to the Gentiles. Imagine how hard that would be for them um, to accept that. And it was a major hurdle for a lot of people. So when God used Peter and brought about a situation where Peter went to the home of a Gentile, that was no small thing. This was a great hurdle to get over. God gives a vision to Cornelius, who is a centurion. He tells him to send, send men to go get Peter. Uh, God gives Peter a vision at the same time uh, of animals that were unclean uh, in this vision. These animals are coming down, and God's, God says to Peter, kill and eat. Right? Well, Peter refuses because these are unclean. But God says, what, what God has made clean do not call common. There's something changed here. Something is different. In the vision, God shows Peter the animals and says, they are clean. This isn't, this isn't just about animals. Right, long story short, Peter understands the message from God. He goes with the men who came from Cornelius to get him. He goes to the house of Cornelius, this Gentile, and tells him, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Acts 10.28. Peter got the message. He understood what God was doing in building his church. And then Acts 10.34 and 35. So, so Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. See, the gospel is going out to every nation. Peter preached the gospel, and Cornelius and his whole household were saved. Look, look with me at chapter 10 uh, of Acts, verses 44 and 45, and to see what happens here. Chapter 10, verses 44 and 45. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Okay, those, those Jews who were there, who were now Christ's followers, this was amazing to them, that the Holy Spirit would now do the same thing with Gentiles. That this was available, Christ was available to the Gentile world as well. Why is this event in history so relevant to you and me? Why does this matter? What's that? Because we're Gentiles, right? right? We're included in the saving work of God because God sent the apostles with the gospel to the Gentiles. 
This is part of church history. And moving forward from here, the rest of the book of Acts is the account of the, the gospel going out to Jews and Gentiles alike, and the church continues to grow primarily through the gospel ministry of the apostles as sent and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Then in uh, Acts chapter 15, we have uh, the, what's known as the first church council. Uh, this, this church council, this is a, a gathering of the leaders in the church. And this came about in about 49 or 50 AD to deal with the issue of confusion over the gospel. Okay, confusion surrounding the gospel. As they had been going from city to city planting churches, Paul and Barnabas on their, their missionary journeys have been preaching the gospel, preaching a gospel that is of salvation by grace through faith, as two of your blanks there. Um, the sin that sins are forgiven by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ alone. That a person is justified. It's one of your blanks or declared righteous by God, based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. Apart from obedience to the law. But others were preaching a different gospel. They're preaching a different message. A message that included salvation by faith, but with works attached to it, with obedience to the law attached to it as a requirement for salvation. And, and putting this requirement on the Gentiles, in particular, to be circumcised. You can't be saved. You can be saved by faith, but you can't be saved unless you're circumcised. Well, that's not the true gospel. So this is causing problems. It's causing confusions. Confusion. Uh, so Paul and Barnabas went to Jerusalem. They met with the elders of the church. They met with the other apostles. Um, and they wanted to discuss this matter, deal with this matter, come to uh, an understanding about this matter. And you find that in Acts 15. Again, Peter is instrumental in bringing about a decision here with uh, his clear statement regarding the truth of the gospel that, that Paul had been preaching. So if you look in chapter 15, uh, verses 7 through 11, we can see what is said here. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. We just looked at that, right? And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Okay, there's no distinction here. There's no works here. This is by grace, through Jesus Christ. It was that way for the Jews that came to faith in Christ. It's that way for the Gentiles. Okay, it's the same. They're, they're dealing with this issue. Like we need to get rid of this false message that's out there that's bringing about confusion. And ultimately, uh, we know that it's no gospel at all. 
when you change the gospel of Christ and you add works to it, it is no gospel. So there at the council, we also see leadership of James, who's the brother of Jesus, as he encourages them not to put undue burdens on the Gentile Christians. So this issue was dealt with by the church, by the church leadership at this first church council. And they did so by the word of God. They didn't make up new rules. They didn't say, hey, let's see what works fairest for everybody else. What they did was they went to the truth. They went to the word of God. Right? And that's how they made their decision. Paul would have to write to the Galatian church, as you know, to deal harshly with this same false teaching about works um, of the law and how people were preaching a different gospel. And he says they're deserving of being cursed because of this. Let them be accursed. And he said, even if I come to you with that kind of thing, let me be accursed. That's, that's how serious this issue was. And the church council got together and dealt with that. So there are other missionary journeys that Paul is a part of, and of course, many of the others are a part of as well. As you continue on in Acts, in chapters 16 through 28, you see all these different accounts of the travelings of uh, Paul and others and what they're doing, what, what cities they're going to, where they're starting churches. Um, and these are known as Paul's missionary journeys. That's one of your blanks. Um, and on his second missionary journey, Paul takes Silas with him, and he picks up along the way a young man named Timothy as well. And we see that in Acts chapter 16. And Timothy will be an important figure in the life and ministry of Paul. In fact, Paul wrote two letters specifically to Timothy regarding how Christians are to behave in the church and how churches are to be organized. And then these men would go back through some of these same cities where churches had been started to, previously to go and check on the believers there, to go and encourage the believers there. Um, and some of you probably have Bibles where in the back you have maps. And maybe your maps have pictures of uh, Paul's missionary journeys and little arrows that show you all the cities he went to and all the places. Those can be really helpful visuals for us. And his third missionary journey begins in Acts 18. And Paul spent a couple years in Ephesus discipling people, many people, including some that would go and, and plant other churches in cities where Paul hadn't, hadn't been, you know, such as Colossae. Um, so we can see the importance of the Word of God being taught and uh, people being sent uh, and churches being started. And this is a pattern that goes on and on leading throughout church history, all the way to Christians at some point in time coming to Mount Shasta and planting a church in Mount Shasta and bringing the gospel to Mount Shasta. The end of his third missionary journey in Acts 21, Paul's in Jerusalem where he wrote um, the books of First and Second Corinthians and Romans. Um, Paul wrote his different letters at different times during his journeys and and while in Jerusalem, Paul is seized by an angry mob of people um, over an issue where they thought he was bringing um, Gentiles into the, uh, into the synagogue. Um, and he's basically rescued by Roman soldiers. Um, and he claims his Roman citizenship. He kind of lands on that as, uh, as appeal. He goes through several years of imprisonment, trials, being taken from one place to another. Um, at one point, he's found innocent. But because he had appealed to Caesar, he had to be taken to Rome. This is how Paul ends up in Rome. And in this whole process, there's, of course, uh, shipwreck and 
but he does eventually make it to Rome, and he's under house arrest there uh, in Rome for another couple years, around 60 to 62 AD. And during that time, he um, obviously, this is always his pattern, is to continue in the gospel no matter what, no matter where he's at, be it prison or not, he's going to share the gospel with whoever's there. Um, and during that time, he would have written his, what's known as his prison epistles. There's a couple blanks there for that. And we know those are um, Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and Philemon, things that he wrote while he was in prison. Again, we have these in Scripture. We see references when we read through those books about Paul talks about his imprisonment and he asks people to pray for him. Um, you can find even a detailed, and I talked about the hardships that Paul went through. You can find a detailed list that Paul gives and at one point he's giving a defense of himself in the face of a bunch of false apostles um, and he's giving a defense of himself as an apostle, a true apostle of Jesus. Um, in the second half of, half of 2 Corinthians 11, quite an extensive list there, if you want to take the time to go look at that, where Paul <laughs> lays out all the things that he went through, and it makes the stuff that we go through look you know, pretty simplistic. Um, but he, he went through a lot in his ministry of the gospel uh, going out to the world. You know, as, you, as we get done with the book of Acts, again, like I said, this is a quick overview. We can't get into everything, though I would love to. Um, but the book of Acts ends at some point. You know, Luke ends his writing, obviously. But church history does not end. Okay, with other biblical accounts from other books, even from outside Scripture, or, uh, sources outside of Scripture, we, we also have an idea of how things continued on in church history, what things occurred. You know, we see in, in history that there's eventually a major fire in Rome, uh, and Rome is destroyed in about 64 AD. And um, Nero, the emperor, is believed to be responsible for that, but he made sure that the blame fell on the Christians, right? And this great persecution of the Christians ensues and um, bring about large-scale persecution, and uh, the Roman historian Tacitus wrote about how Christians would be lit on fire and used as human torches, um, how they would be sewn into animal skins and then fed to wild animals, um, many other things that they would have to endure. Persecution during these times is the experience of Christians when the book of Hebrews was written, right, that addresses these things. You can see in the book of Hebrews the writer addressing the people in the midst of great hardship and persecution, calling on them not to, not to go back to the old covenant system, not to go back to the sacrifice of animals. Um, Christ is held up as superior. Right? They're encouraged to remain steadfast in the faith uh, of Christ. And we get to the 80s and 90s A.D., we see the ministry of the Apostle John. He went from Jerusalem to and ends up in Ephesus. Uh, it's believed that he wrote um, his gospel there and uh, his three epistles there in about the 80s. Um, eventually, John is exiled to the island of Patmos where he uh, receives a final revelation from the Lord and, and he wrote the book of Revelation in the mid-90s. John is the last of the apostles. Um, and 
the only one that wasn't martyred. And Bubba mentioned people that John discipled, like Polycarp, who, who carried on the work of the gospel after John's death in about 100 A.D. And since John was the last of the apostles, the book of Revelation is considered the final book of the New Testament canon of Scripture. And so finally, we, uh, we really see here, what we see through the book of Acts, and I know it was fast and a lot of information, um, but it's not even all of it. Uh, um, what we really see here that's important for us is we see the sovereign hand of God in the building of his church. Through all these events that we see in the scriptures, it is God using his people. We, you know, we don't look at the events of Paul's imprisonment as something that thwarted God's plan. It's part of God's plan. While he's there, he preaches the gospel um, um, to all the Roman guards. Right? He, he writes about it in Philippians, how the gospel is being spread, even in his imprisonment. That never stops Paul. It never stops the gospel. And it's the same throughout church history. No matter what comes against God's people, no matter what comes against the church, God is the one building his church. And he uses the lives of his people to accomplish his good pleasure. And that is to build his church. And God has graciously given us people throughout church history to carry on the work of the gospel and to minister the word of God. Without that, you and I wouldn't be here as Christians without someone at some point sharing the gospel with you. And, and you all know who that is in your life. And the book of Acts doesn't really end with wrapping up the story. It doesn't close out the history of the church. It just leaves off, and everything that God has been doing in and through the church since then is a part of our lives. So we, we should have some interest in it. Uh, Larry mentioned last week, asking a question about have any of you done a you know family search on the internet i can't remember the name of the site but ancestry.com yeah i've never done it um but it is important for us to know where we came from as christians that these aren't just stories that we should know exist and not as if they have no part of our lives they're absolutely important to our lives and as we continue to move forward in this study in church history we're going to see even more uh, of the examples of how God, through history, has used his people in mighty ways, and sometimes through extreme hardship and through the deaths uh, of his people. But again, that is not to us some indication that God is uninvolved or that God doesn't, isn't in control. He absolutely is and always will be in control. We, you and I, we will be part of the lives of Christians who come after us. We don't, we don't know how God is going to use us in other people's lives, but we know that we are to be his ambassadors. We are to take the gospel out, as Brandon was talking about this morning. Um, someone you share the gospel with may come to Christ and be used mightily of God in one of these kind of ways that get written about. It may be one of you at some point that God will use in that way. But there's, no, there's nothing small about sharing the gospel with somebody, and then being saved by God. That's, that's not a small thing. Though you may not ever be written about, uh, that is an important thing that we would take the gospel out. We are a part of the future of church history. They will be looking back at our day and see who are the Christians of that day that 
God was using in a mighty way to bring his word to the world and to build his church. Christ is still building his church. And next week, um, Bubba will get into the next few centuries of church history, including the works of men who sat under the teachings of the apostles. Um, They're very, just because the apostle dies, doesn't mean that message doesn't continue forward. And they do so. And it's important for us to, to know these things. You know, sometimes we can, maybe without even thinking about it, we think Christianity began in, you know, with the uh, Declaration of Independence, right? Christianity began in America. It didn't. It didn't begin in America, and uh, it's going to continue long after America's gone, okay? Jesus Christ is building his church, and we, we should be excited about being a part of that, however, however he would use us. And we should be excited about knowing what he has done in the past and in church history. It should be important to us. All right, we're out of time. I'm sorry I had to go so fast. But let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for today. We thank you for uh, this opportunity to gather together uh, to see how you are building your church. Lord, help us to never think that we are the ones building your church. Help us never to be so arrogant as to think we know better how to do it. Because, Father, your word is so powerful. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to those who believe, first to the Jews and then the Gentiles. And Lord, we are so grateful for that, that you have included every nation, every people group, Lord. Uh, The work of Christ on the cross is absolutely effective to save all of his people from all around the world whenever you see fit to do that. I pray, Lord, that we will be excited about being a part of you building the church. You included us in it. And I pray that we will desire for others to be a part of it, that we will be excited about it. I thank you, Lord, for your word and for the truth of it. We praise your holy name. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.